All right, welcome to our first Sunday school class in a long time. We did some back at the uh, middle school, usually kind of like this, just like a few weeks, um, rather than just kind of a... We're, we're not quite ready as a church to have like every week full Sunday school for all ages. That kind of thing takes a lot of volunteers and there's a lot of other good things going on in the church that I would like people to pour their energy into. So, but I may start trying to teach some of these, you know, periodically and some of the elders might jump in as well. Um, but let's get started with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. And we're going to celebrate it this morning, not only in this class, but also in today's sermon. And we just pray that you give us an appreciation um, for what you do through your word. Um, how powerful it is that you created everything out of nothing. That um, you change things by your word. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us to understand um, the importance of Scripture as we talk about uh, this first pillar of the Reformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation happened, and there were several things that were, um, that changed, okay? Uh, good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> and, like, if you're familiar with the history here, there are a lot of things going on that um, that made it a good time for a Reformation. And the, one of the biggest ones is that the printing press was invented. And so for the first time, translations of the Bible were put in people's hands like you and me. And you didn't have to go to school for a really long time to have access to... Um, God's word. Um, you could, you know, I mean, they, they were, they became affordable rather quickly and, you know, available in your language. Um, and so uh, people started studying the scriptures and um, lots of people became trained in the scriptures that never would have had access before. So it's kind of one of the big things. But um, this first pillar. We call them the five solas. The first one is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone um, in Latin. And so uh, about 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, I think, um, there was a group of um, folks called the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals who published this Cambridge Declaration And this is how they define this doctrine. We uh, reaffirm the inerrant scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. We deny that any creed, counsel, or individual may bind a Christian's conscience that the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to what is set forth in the Bible, or that personal spiritual experience can be a vehicle of revelation. Okay, So that's a lot of words. What that means, um, 
in that first part there, I kind of broke it down into four categories um, to explain what this means. The first word there underlined is inerrant. It means that Scripture contains no errors or contradictions. Scripture is completely trustworthy. Anything that we might consider to be a contradiction is the result of faulty human interpretation. Um, and then I put two verses there just to kind of reinforce that. Does anybody happen to know what 2 Timothy 3.16 says? Anyone got that memorized? All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, useful for teaching, encouragement. Y'all know that verse? What about 2 Peter 1? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, So if God's Word comes from God, it does not contain errors. Revelation, um, that word is full of meaning. And theologians divide that word into two types of revelation. One is general, the other is special. General revelation is anything that God reveals to us in His created order or in human beings, the way we were created um, you know the, the character and the and the uh, the nature of humans reveals something about God, and then special revelation is God's word in the Old and New Testaments. Um, it's called special because, uh, as Calvin said, the word pro- provides us with spectacles or glasses. So it's a, it's a lens by which we understand rightly the world around us. Okay, so it helps to bring into focus or to understand or to see general revelation. So um, that's why it's called special. <clears throat> you might know what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is handiwork. What about Romans 1? That's where it talks about humans suppressing the knowledge of God that's evident to us in creation. Right? Okay. Um, The word binds the conscience. Okay? It binds the conscience. We do not receive it as the authority of man's word, but as God's. Okay? So, Scripture is a set of scales by which we measure all other words. Um, This is important because... Really, when Sola Scriptura, when that Reformation principle kind of became one of the major points of the Reformation, um, the point was to say Scripture bears a weight or an authority that is above that of a pope or a priest or a creed or a council. Okay? 
Not that it's the only authority, but it is above all other authority. And so where the Catholic Church historically at that time and still today to some extent um, placed the, the historical creeds and even the word of the Pope as equal to Scripture, as, as divine revelation, um, they were saying, no, that's, that's not true. Okay? Um, we don't, we don't think that the Pope's word binds the conscience of human beings. So that's, that's really the historical, the big one, as far as why it came out of the Reformation. And uh, we're going to do a discussion in a minute, but stop me if you have questions, okay, about anything I've said. Um, and then finally, necessary, meaning we cannot live without the Word of God, um, for we know, uh, or it's, it's the only way for us to know the truth about God and our need for Him. Uh, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, right? And so <clears throat> um, that's, what the script, that's what Scripture alone means. What it does not mean, and it sometimes has been confused to mean, um, all I need is just me and my Bible. Okay, that would be the other extreme. Okay, so what they were, what they were answering was one extreme to say that You know, we don't just need God's word as our final authority. We also need the words of the Pope or of a pastor or anybody, right? Um, But the opposite extreme would be to say, um, you know, all I need is my Bible and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to reveal to me exactly what I need to know from it, okay? Why do you think that's a a problem? Why? What would be the danger of that? What would you say to someone who said, I don't need all that theology, I just need my Bible? Too subjective. We would have lots of different, lots of different uh, (laughs) cults. Starting up, if that's all that anybody ever did, right? Jesus quoted the Bible a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, if we try to figure out our own system of doctrine and we ignore all history and religious tradition, we end up making the same mistakes that others have already made, right? Um, You know, we end up making the mistake of thinking, that the Holy Spirit is only speaking to me when in fact he has illumined scripture to countless other saints throughout history and um, I don't trust myself that much to know if it's me speaking or the Holy Spirit speaking, right? So um, we're better together in terms of figuring out what the Bible actually says. Um, And in fact, many heresies have began... um, from trusting human interpretation of Scripture, right? So, by saying that Scripture alone is, you know, inerrant and divine revelation and binding the conscience and necessary, okay, that's what it's alone in, but it's not the only authority. And it's important to make that distinction. It's the only infallible authority, but in our church we do respect the authority of trained teachers and of historical creeds and confessions. Um, Those are all open to revision. They are not the final authority. 
but they do matter. They do help hem us in and protect us from serious error. Okay? So, um, some questions there at the bottom. Why do you think this doctrine was so important during the Protestant Reformation? I mean, I've given you some, some hints there, but any other ideas or anything? You guys might be students of history. Anything that uh, stood out to you that maybe that I didn't mention? Why do you think sola scriptura was so important? Hey, Mike, you, you, I appreciate this also, the, uh, the, the, the Cambridge Declaration, but I think it ties in somehow to number one of your application. This has some questions. Twice, you know, binding conscience and uh, individual, we deny that the increased counsel for individual may bind a Christian conscience. How do you think this has played out, you know, in 2020, going in 2021, and some of the because I think it's where it might get to some of number one too. That's some thoughts, but I'd love to hear if anybody else wants to answer that question. My talking. I'll put, I'll put, yeah. So I think one of the issues that they had during the Protestant Reformation was the Roman Catholic Church had opposed a very rigid interpretation and did not uh, kind of remove themselves from the moorings of historic faith as it was handed down to the saints uh, by Jesus and, and to the disciples and to the students. But one issue I think here going into 2021, which is significant, is that you know, we're not talking about disagreements over what constitutes the truth. We're arguing over what constitutes whether or not a truth can be known and whether or not it's applicable or not. So it's all more important to understand the truth as it's conveyed, communicated, embraced, apart from folks' willingness to uh, embrace it or not. it, it, It is what it is, and the interpretation of that truth is so significant that it can't be open to subjective, uh, kind of at the whim of the hearer. You know, there's a system handed down by God, uh, interpreted by God, and that's the starting point, and that's was the guidepost, you know. So, in other words, 500 years ago, the question was, what is our authority? And now the question is, is there an authority at all? Yeah, yeah. It's a concept. It's still an authority question. Yeah. Looking at it through different lenses, and the I think yeah, reformers had much problem of how the church is abusing its authority apart from the scriptures, which is a lot of what we're living out while we plant churches, <laughs> the authority abused in the church, and the authority abused in uh, our, our country, our society as a whole. Because at least then you have a proposition, say you have competing uh, schools of thought, you have a proposition that is based on a system. Now you don't have systems. You have thoughts that are extracted out from any real systematic understanding of how the world should be, and then that becomes the agenda, right? You know what I mean? Um, there's not there's not a desire to understand a systemic interpretation of the world as it is. It's just there's a value proposition based on a need or an agenda item, and then that's it. It's in a silo. It's completely extracted from a people. It's extracted from a history. It's extracted from 
a worldview. Mm. It's a bloodbath. <laughs> Which in and of itself is worldview. Never <laughs> Yeah. It's a still faith system, it's still a belief system, it's still an authority system. The question is, who's the authority? That's why I think it's beautiful that you're, you're focusing on that and how that ties into really just even our struggles in marriage and family. Um, so, who's the boss? Uh, it's interesting and this has come up for me several times this week in different contexts, but um, I keep coming back to it. If you think about the fall, um, it really was a question of authority. There's a lot of things, but one of them, you know, I mean, did God really say this? And does he have a right to say this? You know, and that was essentially what Adam and Eve were questioning. Um, so the serpent comes and says, you know, did God really say? And the underlying question there that, that Eve was struggling with is, wait a second, is God holding out on me? Is there something that he's not telling me? Or that he's holding back from me? And so underneath that assumption or that question, that doubt, is covetousness, essentially. Okay, um... I I want whatever that is. Underneath that is the assumption of entitlement. I deserve whatever that is. Or you don't deserve whatever that is. Right? And then underneath that, of course, pride. That I uh, am entitled to it because essentially I'm overly trusting my own Assessment of the situation, or I'm mistrusting God's assessment of the situation, right? Which brings back to authority. So that's really what's going on in the fall, and we see it being played out historically. No matter where this, where the issue falls on the spectrum, it's still that question of authority. Um, and so now we would say it's not. We're not arguing about whether the Pope is the authority. We're arguing about whether I am the ultimate moral authority to make decisions for myself which are generally motivated by covetousness and pride. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're going to deal with that some this morning too. So, uh, what about number two? Sometimes people say things like, God told me, okay? I hear this all the time as a pastor. I've been hearing it for 20-something years, right? What, what would the Reformers say about this? What should we say about this? What does Scripture say about this? When somebody says to you, God told me to break up with you, God told me to, you know, put all my money in Dogecoin or whatever. I mean, <laughs> what, what do you say to that? How does that, what, what's the biblical response? God be mocking. Is that a figure of speech? I think sometimes, maybe, but... I don't think anybody that I've ever heard that from means that God audibly spoke to them. This, what what do they mean by it? In this, in this hypothetical, this is a fellow believer that believes the word. Or is probably a Christian, right? Yeah. Okay. So generally they would say that they feel so compelled uh, to do something that this must be what God wants. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, once again, it goes back to our objective standard, right? We can start with the open to interpretation stuff that we think God might have told us, but let's weigh it against what we know he's told us definitively and it's worth. Well, then they don't really mean yeah, it's a it's probably a semantic problem. In some churches, you would call that a divine unction, like a, a leading. I feel like God. It would be better to say, I feel like God may be leading me in this direction. Yeah, that's how I'm interpreting that comment. Yeah, um, it can be dangerous though. Can you think of a situation where it might be unfair or dangerous to say something like that? Like in a flippant way? Or you mean like actually communicate that you believe it or to say it flippantly? Um, period. Period. Either, either or. Well, you can send people you know, wandering around the parking lot staring up to the heavens waiting for another uh, clue for what they should do with their lives. You know, rather than start with what you know. What's yeah. been communicated already. So that's pretty dangerous, right? I've heard a lot of Bible believing Christians use that same language to justify sin. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they can always quote Psalm 37, doesn't God want to give me the desire of my heart? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Including the desperately wicked ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. That sounds pretty dangerous. Well, cult leaders, it's been known. Yeah. You can lead people astray. Sure. Um, Mike, you're not a cult leader. Uh, no. Don't take my word for it. Says uh, Reading Rando. Well, you can tell no snacks. Oh, sorry, sorry, snacks. Yeah, no, there's no good way. No snacks. No cult. No cult here. We have no snacks. Um, okay. Uh, this is one that that really stood out to me. Uh, when I was in college, my campus ministry used to say this. Uh, he was like, look, don't, don't break up with somebody and tell them that God told you to do it. And he said, the reason that's bad is because you leave the other person feeling like there's something wrong with them. You know what I mean? Like, okay, God's obviously speaking to you. I, why is he not speaking to me? Am I less of a Christian? Am I less righteous or whatever? Like, just... Own the decision. I feel that we should no longer. You know what I mean. So, like, there are times where we might put it off on God's sovereignty. When, okay, yeah, it's always true. God is sovereign over these things, but it would be unwise to pawn that off on God and then potentially injure the other Christian, the other person. Um, so sometimes we need to be careful about using God told me to justify a decision that we're making is, is one here's situation. The here's the way that when I'm talking about one of my boys this week. There's, there's a subtle way which uh, my campus intern, uh, I was with him, and, and he said he was late to the Bible study, so he had his Bible in the front seat of his car, and he just said, yes, officer, I'm just on my way to the Bible study. I'm really running late, and sort of like held up the Bible. I was like, yeah, that's really bad. Um, you just get the ticket and move on. But that's a, that's a subtle way in which we try to kind of manipulate people or, you know, yeah, manipulate people. Yeah. You can use religious authority to really spiritually abuse people too. Um, you know, people in leadership in churches have done it for 
centuries, and that's what Jesus said. You know, don't lord it over others as the as the pagans do, um, and that's causes really spiritual abuse in people's lives when you start pontificating about their lives as if God is telling you something. So, just if there's some balance there. Um, what about church creeds? Are they equal to scripture? No. Yeah. Good good Protestants would say no. Functionally sometimes we act like they are. Um you know. Is it Semper Reformando always reforming? Yeah. So technically our creeds are open to revision. Um in our church. Um they're, you know open a revision with a super majority but we could change even the confession so doesn't happen all that often but good um, Christians often claim number four that scriptures are our only rule of life but is that true in practice what other things tend to guide church's decisions or the decisions of an individual Christian Convenience. Money. Money. Ooh. Good. Convenience, good. What else? I think a lot of... Um, a lot of evangelicals, um, we, we mock Catholics for having the Pope, but, but we all have our special teacher, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of John Piper, I'm of Mark Dever, I'm of, you know, so like we have our guy that like we never question. John MacArthur people tend to be the worst, they like never question anything, so. <laughs> but, but that's could be dangerous, right? That we what happens when those guys fail, which they do sometimes. Um, just a thought. Any other thoughts? All right, if scripture is not the ultimate authority in this world, what must we conclude? Let's say everything that we've talked about this morning is bogus and this is not God's word and why should we care about it? Then what what's the conclusion? What's the point? Every man or woman does what is right in his own eyes, right? Which is kind of where our culture has landed. I remember Paul, I was to make sure Paul David Tripp said this when a guy came, young guy struggling with, you know, immorality, but 
he went on and on and on. And finally, I think Paul Richard said something I really hadn't heard in a long time just to solidify it. Like, in the beginning, God. Right? And I was like, huge, because we're always trying to begin with ourselves, our circumstances, our failures, our worldview. But God is ultimately saying, in the beginning, it's me. All right, on the back of your sheet, I just put a couple of other, just some more words there. Um, boys, one of y'all want to read the, uh, the quote at the top by John Calvin? Go for it, Isaac. The difference between us and the papists is that they do not think what the church can be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it is because she reverently subjects herself to the word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hand. Okay. Papists or Catholics? People who believe in the Pope, right? So, um, so he's saying that Catholics don't believe that the church can be the pillar of truth unless she presides over the Word of God. And he's saying, no, we actually need to subject ourselves to the Word of God, and that's how truth is preserved and passed on. Um, I grew up Jehovah's Witness, and Jehovah's Witnesses have a similar doctrine. They, they have published this in writing, and you can look it up. Uh, I think Watchtower 1984, I forget which one, but um, basically said... Um, we predict that an individual Christian who tries to read the Bible on their own without the help from our organization's material will fall away within a matter of months or something like that. It's like basically they're just saying you can't understand the Bible without our help. Like you got to have our stuff. Um, same the same error. You know. So that's <clears throat> and probably functionally true in a lot of other areas of the church. All right. Um, somebody read this next paragraph. I will. Thanks. Rather than adapting Christian faith to satisfy the felt needs of consumers, we must proclaim the law as the only measure of true righteousness and the gospel as the only announcement of saving faith. Biblical truth is indispensable to the church's understanding, nurture, and discipline. Scripture must take us beyond our perceived needs to our real needs and liberate us from seeing ourselves through the seductive images, cliches, promises, and priorities of mass culture. It is only in the light of God's truth that we understand ourselves right and seek God's provision for our need. The Bible, therefore, must be taught and preached in church. Sermons must be expositions of the Bible and its teachings not expressions of the preacher's opinions or the ideas of the age. We must settle for nothing less than what God has given. The work of the Holy Spirit and personal experience cannot be disengaged from Scripture. The Spirit does not speak in ways that are independent of Scripture. Apart from Scripture, we would never have known God's grace in Christ. The biblical word, rather than spiritual experience, is the test of truth. Mm. 
Um, almost no one in history that was in the middle of a particular culture and learning bad theology realized it, right? I mean, they, you don't know what you don't know. Um, for instance, somebody was telling me this week that, and I don't, I'm going to butcher this, but he was quoting, there was some study that was done, somebody may know the details on this, but some study that was done that basically concluded that the vast majority of Americans, had we lived in Nazi Germany in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, would have agreed with everything that was taught. Like for us, outside of it, looking at it, that's like, that's absurd. But like if you're actually in it, it's not so absurd, right? And that's the danger. And so that's why this is so important that we not allow ourselves to be wooed over by the priorities of the culture. And we have to always be on guard of that because it's always happening. Like right now in American churches that are preaching the gospel, there are influences working their way into the mix that we have to be on guard against. So. And that is kind of an illustration of how it can be super helpful with regard to catechisms and confessions. Because I grew up Catholic, and when I got introduced to evangelicalism and the Protestant Reformation specifically, at first blush, it was, okay, you traded councils and creeds for confessions and catechisms. It's a difference without distinction, right? But then over time, understanding like how Calvin put it, this is a record of God's people receiving, preserving, and, and, and holding on to the truth together. So I think it's helpful because it's that guidepost where, hey, if some ideas popped up because somebody found some golden plates buried in the woods somewhere and then saw an angel appear out of nowhere and now needs to go conquer the West, dun, how, does, dun, 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 dun. how does that compare to how all of our people before us have understood the truth? Is that consistent? You know? Yeah. So... Not that I was calling out any specific I would rather you write your theology down so I know what you believe. Hey. <laughs> as long as you know it's not God's word, but it's at least we know we, you know we have something to hold each other accountable to. Yeah. Good. And this is the thing we hate we really hate history as Americans, but historical theology is what we're talking about. Huge. All right, thank you guys for coming. Let's wrap it up. We'll do Only Christ next week. Somebody want to close us in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the truth, that you have preserved it, you've left us a trail that you're communicating to us clearly. Thank you that we belong to a church that embraces that truth, that takes very seriously the responsibility to understand and live it. And we thank you for the teachers we have and the hearts we have here that are open to learn it, live it, and love it. And we thank you for your, for your grace. We thank you for the world that you've given and, and your word and your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray for his kingdom's sake. Amen.